Ignorance is bliss, except when it's not, right? In C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, young Diggory Kirk and his friend Polly find themselves in a very strange world that's eerily silent. And they come into a great hall where there are all these statues of people that look like ancient kings and queens. And eventually they, they find a table that is in the middle of the hall, and it has a, a bell on it and a hammer. And it has an inscription that, that has a poem on it. It reads this, Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad what would have followed if you had. Diggory, not knowing what will happen if he strikes the bell, is overcome with curiosity and, and strikes it. And almost immediately regrets that decision because what happens Queen Jadis, the white witch, is awakened. And not only does she come and wreak havoc in our world, she also gets into Narnia and she becomes Aslan's chief foe and the one who seeks to really subjugate all of the people and animals in Narnia. If Diggory had known what would have happened when he struck the bell, he never would have done it. And yet he was almost destroyed for the lack of knowledge. In his Hosea chapter 4, God says that his people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I immediately have a number of questions, right? Uh, for instance, what, what don't they know? <laughs> How much do they need to know? Is it only knowledge that will save them from being destroyed? Well, we're going to hopefully answer some of those questions and a few other ones as we dive into Hosea chapter 4. We are in the middle of this study of the book. We, uh, the last three weeks, have looked at uh, the first three chapters, and now we are to chapter 4. And so if you are able, please stand for this reading of God's Word. We're going to read the first six chapters of Hosea 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This is God's word. For God's people and for the good of the world, please, please, be, please be seated. The book of Hosea has really a simple structure to it. It's really two parts. You have the first three chapters of it, which are all about Hosea and Gomer's relationship, right? Their, their marriage uh, Gomer's adultery, Hosea's uh, buying her back, and we looked at that uh, last week. And then 
you have the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 14, which is really a series of God's reflections on his relationship with his people. Now, some interpreters have labeled these as a series of sermons. And it's possible, we don't really know that, uh, but it's possible that Hosea uh, preached these or, or prophesied them as a series of messages to the people in the northern kingdom of Israel. But when you, when you look at chapters 4 and 5, uh, you can read them like a sermon, but you can also read them as a lawsuit, which, which is a common thing in the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books. God, the judge, also sometimes acts as a prosecuting attorney, right? Bringing charges and evidence against his people um, of, of how they have broken their covenant with him. And there are two things, two key things that God says in this covenant lawsuit here in chapter 4. In, in verse 1, he says, there is no knowledge of God in the land. And then in verse 6, he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, Francis Bacon once said that knowledge is power, Right? The more you know, the more you can advance and become powerful. And, and probably our whole educational system is, is based off of that idea, right? But the knowledge that God is talking about here is a specific type of knowledge that doesn't necessarily make you more powerful, but it's a, it's a type of knowledge that is transformative, that changes people from the inside out. And the first the first thing we see in this passage is that those who don't know God won't be changed from their destructive ways. Now, ever since the fall, we have been born with a proclivity to sin, with sin raging in our hearts. Now, I know that that is controversial statement, right? There are some people who think that we're, we're just naturally good, we're naturally innocent. But let me ask you this question, especially if you have children. At what age, at what point did you teach your children to lie? You didn't do that, did you? At what, at what point did you teach your children how to be selfish and not share their toys, right? You didn't. Children know how to do that, Right? No child has to be taught how to scream at the top of his lungs when his needs are not getting met. This is, this is inherent and natural to us. What we do have to learn is how to be good. We have to learn how to, how to share, how to put other people's needs above our own. We have to teach our children who God is and that he is to be obeyed. And the first verse here, God says, he has a controversy with Israel because he doesn't see any evidence that they have been taught about him and about what is good. He says there's, what does he, look at verse 1, he says there's, there's no, uh, he says there's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Now that, that phrase, steadfast love, it, in the Hebrew it's one word, so it's a, very specific word, the word chesed, which means covenant faithfulness or covenant love. Whenever you hear that word covenant in the Bible or, or you know, when you're reading or when I'm preaching, I like to use the word a lot, uh, just think, 
relationship, right? Covenant is how God thinks about his relationship with us. He makes a covenant with us in Scripture. And he says there's no covenant faithfulness in the land, the land of Israel, right? And you can almost hear the sadness in God's voice, saying no one knows me. No one cares about our relationship. What, what is there in the land of Israel? What, he tells us in verse 2, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. What's all that? That's five of the Ten Commandments, right? Almost verbatim. And you can imagine that all of the other commandments as well are being regularly broken with no repentance. See, the implication here is that where people know God, the source of goodness, that they, they'll be equipped to do good. They'll be equipped to keep the Ten Commandments. But where people do not know God, they're not equipped or motivated to do good, to keep the commandments. And their wickedness destroys them, as God says in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. Now, the contrast between those who know God and those who don't was very stark in Hosea's day, right? And God even intended it to be stark, right? Israel was supposed to be his covenant people who were to be a light to the nations, an example of what it means to be loving and kind and merciful. The people, the, the pagan nations around Israel, however, did not have the law, did not have covenant relationship with God. And there was a stark contrast, right? The surrounding nations around Israel almost uniformly practiced child sacrifice. The Assyrians, just one example, where Nineveh is found, right? They were the ones who invented crucifixion. They were known as masters of torture. They used to uh, skin their enemies, cut their skin off while they're still alive and hanging on the city walls. They had a game that their soldiers played to keep sharp where they would take human heads and toss them between their swords. Relentlessly cruel, wicked people. Even in more recent history in pre-Christian Europe, infanticide was a rule, not an exception. Right? If you were a man and your wife gave birth to a daughter and you wanted a son, you could take that daughter and leave her out in the wilderness for the wild beasts to take. And that was fine. Women and children were considered property. And a man could do whatever he wanted with them, including killing them. Right? Men were expected to have mistresses, even very young. Just part of a culture that does not know God. And what's so interesting about Hosea 4 is that God is saying that Israel, right, his covenant people, he gave his law and himself to, they are acting no different from the nations. In fact, they are running head first after the false gods and the, the pagan practices of those nations. They've reverted essentially to their natural wickedness because they don't know God and they are not seeking him and after his ways. Now, I can imagine that 
as we think about this in our day, right, a natural objection is, well, well, Pastor, I know some atheists, some non-religious people who are really good people, right? They don't practice child sacrifice, And that is true. It's very true. I've known non-religious people who are very good people. But I want to do, I want to suggest three things to you. The first is that uh, atheists, non-religious people live on borrowed capital. What that means is that, especially in America and in the West, they have been, they've lived in a society that was shaped by Christian and Judeo-Christian values, right? And they have been influenced by those values, whether they know it or not, right? Such values as the inherent dignity of all people. That's a distinctly Christian and Judeo-Christian value, right? Because there is a God who created us. We are equal, right? And we have an inherent dignity. A truly atheistic worldview has no grounds for believing in the inherent dignity uh, and equality of all people. They've borrowed that capital from a theistic worldview, right? Whether intentionally or not. It's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say this is, though, is this. Good works are not defined by us, okay? The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is this uh, great teaching tool for about well, what the Bible says and about uh, the Christian faith, it has this really brilliant section in it about good works. What are good works? And it, it defines good works as those being what God has commanded in his word, not those, quote, devised by men out of blind zeal. In other words, just because I think I'm doing a good thing, right, just because I label something a good thing does not make it so. Good works are ultimately said, are, are good because God, who created all things, defines them as good. The third thing I would say, though, is that good works are connected to God. Again, the Confessions chapter on good works puts it so well, I'm going to quote it, okay? It's not that long of a quote. Take a, take a sip of coffee. Here we go. Listen to this. Works done by people who have not been spiritually spiritually reborn may be the same as those commanded by God and may be good, of good use to them and to others. However, since they do not proceed from a heart purified by faith, are not done in the right way in response to God's word, and are not done for the right purpose, the glory of God, they're therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a person fit to receive grace from God. Right? In other words, those who have not been spiritually reborn, those who have not been converted, don't know God, their good works are flawed throughout, right? They don't, they don't start from a heart of faith. They don't proceed according to the word of God, and they are not done for the glory of God. They are flawed throughout. Goodness is tied to God. Right? And those who don't know God will be destroyed because they're not, goodness is not connected to him and is therefore not real. And Israel would have nothing to say in response to God's lawsuit against them. Right? They are Gomer, running away from the one who loves them, one, running away from the one who is good for them. 
And their behavior reflected the object of their worship, the false gods. But there's an implication in verse 1 here. That is that if there is knowledge of God in the land, there will also be faithfulness. There will also be covenant love, right? In other words, those who know God will become like, they'll become holy like God. When I was eight years old, my dad was asked to give the message at a chapel service for the Pittsburgh Steelers. We lived in Pittsburgh at the time, and, and so he brought my two brothers and me, and, and, uh, and after the chapel service was over, we were just standing around in the back of the room, and, and then all of a sudden, this tall, skinny guy with a thin mustache walked up to us and said, hey, how y'all doing? It was John Stallworth the great Hall of Fame wide receiver. I don't know what I said, probably nothing. But from then on out, whenever the kids in my neighborhood played football, I was John Stallworth, number 82. My brother was Lynn Swan. Swan and Stallworth, we were unstoppable, probably. In my, in my mind, my memory. When we encounter greatness and even goodness, it changes us. But... but But what does it mean to know God? Uh, In this passage, the word for knowledge, which God repeats a few different times, is is the same, it comes from the same root word, yada, that we read about in Genesis 4, when we read that Adam knew his wife Eve. Right? That, the, kind of lo- uh, the kind of knowledge that Adam had for Eve was not, he didn't just know she existed, right? Or knows things about her. He, it was an experiential, uh, a relational love. He knew her in a deep, loving way. You see, it's not, it's not just enough for us to know about God. You have to know him in a committed, loving way. James chapter 2 says that even the demons know God. They know about him, and yet they are still opposed to him, right? They do not know him. They don't love him. They don't want to follow him. They're not changed by that knowledge except in fear and condemnation. True knowledge of God is transformative. To know God is to love him and to become like him. And when we become like him, we begin to act like him. We begin to do good works, right? It was Christians who founded the first universities. It was Christians who started the first schools for the blind and deaf. The first Christians, by and, the first scientists, by and large, were Christians. Most of the first hospitals in America were founded by Christian groups. It was Quakers and evangelical groups in England who first spoke out against slavery and started the abolitionist movement. There's this fascinating uh, letter that we have from ancient Roman culture, the first century, um, written to a man named Diogenes that brings out really the stark contrast between Roman culture and Christian culture. And the writer of the letter says this, talking about Christians, these Christ followers, this cult, right? He says, "They, they marry, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws in their lives. 
They love all and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. Right? In other words, it was not hard to figure out who Christians were in the first century. Right? They were, they were good in a revolutionary way. They were good in a way that their Lord, Jesus, was good. Followed after him because they knew him. Now, there is no doubt that many horrific things have been done in the name of Christ throughout history. But as Martin Luther King showed, the answer to that, the antidote to that is not to pull away from faith, but is actually to press further into real faith, right? To acknowledge our remaining sinfulness and to be more like God who is good and true and beautiful. So my question for you this morning is, how well do you know God? Are you settling for just knowing about him? Are you just sort of dipping your toes into the waters of the knowledge of God? And if so, let me ask you this. What is more rewarding than the pursuit of God? In the eternal scheme of things, what is more worthwhile than learning to be like God? Learning to love like him. You know, I've been to a lot of funerals. And uh, almost every single one, there's a time when people talk about the deceased and talk about their good qualities, their virtues. And many of them, it's very touching time. So, you know, if there's just one thing that could be said about me at my funeral, I would want it to be that he knew God. He walked with God. This is, this is more, again, more than just studying theology, right? Some of us, myself included, often substitute just study about God for true knowledge of him, pursuit of him in prayer. J.I. Packer warns us about this. He says in his great book, Knowing God, if we pursue knowledge of God for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. The very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us, and we shall come to think of ourselves as a cut above other Christians because of our interest in it and grasp of it. It's not wrong to study, not even necessarily wrong to debate, but if it's just head knowledge, if it's just for our own knowledge, it's ultimately useless. As Packer says, we must seek in studying God to be led to God. Are we being led to God? Are we pushing on to know him? And does that change us, right? That's a hard question every Christian has to ask. Am I exhibiting in my life the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The hard thing is that if you're not exhibiting those things, you probably need to ask yourself, do I really know God? And has that knowledge changed me? Now, the hard news is that God often reveals himself when in the hard times, in the suffering, which, which may mean that most of us maybe have gotten to know God more over this last year. 
Uh, But there is certainly no better time than now to seek after him and commit yourself to his ways. Jeremiah 9, God says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. Let's pray. Father, there's no one who is worth knowing more than the one who created us. And who have I in heaven but you? You are our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy, and the ultimate change agent who changes our hearts, rewires them for good. Father, would you draw us to yourself? If there are any here who do not know you, would you reveal yourself to them as they examine the claims of the Bible, examine the claims of Christ? Would you teach them, teach us your ways, teach us how to follow in your ways and to to delight in our knowledge of you? and to teach our children to do so as well. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.